0: Hello, and welcome back to the ScaveUps Ups and Hypergrowth podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. It's my pleasure today to have Roderick Jefferson, who is CEO of Roderick Jefferson and Associates. He is a specialist in Sales Enablement 2.0. What is Sales Enablement 2.0? Well, we'll find that out in a moment. Roderick, could you give a quick introduction to who you are and your journey so far?
1: Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on, Marcus. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. So I am first and foremost, a salesperson. I started as a BDR, moved into an AE role, did quite well, did the whole president's club thing. And then before being moved and promoted into sales leadership, I realized that I actually love the process of selling more than I did taking down big deals. So I moved into sales training and that was, oh, quite a few years ago. And from there, I've been fortunate to have an incredible journey and learn an enormous amount along the way. As I've run sales enablement, sales productivity, uh, sales enhancement, et cetera, I think I've won just about every title in the last 25 years. At companies like Siebel Systems, Network Appliance, Business Objects, eBay, PayPal, HP, Oracle, Salesforce, and Marketo.
0: Wow, that, that yeah. is the gold standard in terms of tech companies, you probably couldn't have been at better places. So tell me something, what is Sales Enablement 2.0?
1: Well, Sales Enablement 2.0 is what I'm calling the next normal. It's about designing, building, and deploying Sales Enablement differently from the way that we're doing it today. So here's an example. Today, we're focused on things like decreasing time to revenue, increasing sales productivity, strategy, architecture, execution, processes, programs, platform. Well, that was great pre-COVID, but now as we know the world has completely shifted and as does sales enablement have to shift as well. And it's unfortunate because we've been in, I'll call it a rut for the last 20 years. Certainly we've enhanced technology, but as an enablement group, we're doing a lot of things the same way, but we've got to shift to focusing on things like how can we help our clients hold on to their current customers? Business outcome focused selling. How do we help increase profit, reduce costs, mitigate risks, all the things that really matter to prospects and customers today? Excellent. Okay. So, what are the four most common
0: questions you get asked about sales enablement and enabling sales teams?
1: I'd say, what is sales enablement first and foremost? Because I think if you ask 10 people, you'll get 12 answers. <laughs> I also get, when should I bring in a sales enablement leader? What exactly should they be responsible for? What are the metrics that we should be looking at from sales enablement? And I'll give you a bonus fit. What does enablement not do? Let's start with that one then. What does sales (laughs) enablement not do? Well, we're not sales scribes. We're not sales servants. We are not the fixers of broken things. IT has that worked out. What we should be is true partners That align and connect and collaborate across all of the lines of business. So what is the actual
0: function of sales enablement?
1: What's what's its purpose? Phenomenal question. And I think that depends upon a couple of things. One, the maturation cycle and point of a company and what they're looking for and needing at that time. Now, broadly, I define sales enablement as getting the right people in the right conversations with the right tools. At the right time to drive increased revenue and decreased time to ramp. And finally, customers for life.
0: And it's that customer for life piece I'd like to build on. Absolutely. Um, You see a lot of uh, top performing sales reps who are great at the transactional side, but they're not necessarily great at account penetration and retention. What do you reckon sales enablement can bring to the party uh, in terms of increasing longevity and increasing customer satisfaction, improving experience?
1: Well, I I think this is probably going to be a long-winded answer, but I'll start in the very beginning. Sales enablement should be a part of the interview cycle for all of your sales folks, first and foremost, a part of that assessment and that acquisition of talent, because that's where the journey truly starts to building customers for life. And it goes from their future forward. Now let's get to the customers. We need to be focused on how we can help them in their buyer's journey, not trying to shoehorn them into our sales process, sales stages, sales methodology, like a lot of companies do. Because quite frankly, those things are important. But if you don't get a hold and get your arms around the buying process, the who, the what, the why, and the how, your prospects, and your clients buy, it doesn't matter because you won't get new clients.
0: I was coaching a client of mine only a couple of days ago, and he was tearing his hair out because his boss was encouraging him to go back to clients or prospects who were not ready to buy and going back and offering 80 and 90% discounts. Now, what happens then is that they don't buy And when they are ready to buy, now they're expecting an 80 or 90% discount. Why is it that there is so much idiocy in senior management and, and middle management that drives that kind of ludicrous and harmful behavior?
1: It's interesting. We were having this conversation in a circle of sales enablement practitioners just not long ago. And we came up to a few theories. First and foremost, we've got to teach leaders excuse me, managers, because those are not leaders that are driving that. We've got to teach managers that discounting is for you and your company to close deals. It's not for the customer. Because in the absence of value, we will discuss price. Yep. And so stop talking about the features, the benefits, the price, and start talking about a simple, so simple concept of the value of the experience of working with us as a company that you cannot get anywhere else. As long as we stay in that feature and functionality conversation, it's always going to stay there. The other thing is stop talking and giving out and giving away discounts right away because to your point, what happens is you set the expectation when you do come back later and once you've put that out in the universe, you cannot take it back. Well,
0: you've touched on a couple of one of my particular pet peeves. So let's start with, in the absence of value, we will discuss price. I'm going to give you credit once, then it's mine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the credit first and it, foremost.
0: Well, you'll get one. Cost is never the issue. Money is never the issue in a real selling situation. It becomes the issue when a salesperson fails to listen, fails to understand, and is fixated on making the sale. I think it stems from something else as well, which is a weak, empty, or inconsistent sales pipeline. Scared money doesn't sell well. And so when- I love that one. Now, that
1: one I'm going to steal from you. You're welcome. Or even now. (laughs) I'll give you credit (laughs) once.
0: (laughs) So yeah, scared money doesn't sell because what happens is you project out that you are needy, desperate, and skint, uh, broke. The problem with that is no one wants to buy from a broke salesperson. And no one wants to buy from someone who is needy or desperate. So if you have a full sales pipeline, so the thing that I teach all of my clients and all the people that I work with is that you need a pipeline that is 300 to 500% fuller than it needs to be, moving from the qualified to closable stage. And that's your prime directive. When you're in sales, you take your new job. The first thing you have to do is get to 300% moving from qualified to closable. By 12 months, it should be 500%. Then you have choice because you prospect for choice. If you have five deals that you could win at any given point, and it doesn't matter if four of them fall out and you're still going to hit your quota, then you can plant your feet. I had a client I was coaching only two days ago again, same day. And procurement started kicking off about price and didn't need to have that conversation so early. And so my client just said, well, we may have a problem. Let me tell you what my big fear is. We only sell at list. We never discount. Oh, well, everyone gives a discount. We don't. Shall we end it? Now, what was really interesting was my client was sat there in the, on the call, not only with procurement, but also with his sponsor, who had already decided that they were going to use this company. So his next response was, should I take it in that case that we're no longer required in this bid, and you no longer want to consider us? At which point, the fireworks kicked off, and the sponsor starts taking pieces out of procurement and tells them to go and bury their neck. Now. <laughs> The problem is that salespeople don't have a spine, because too often, they don't know how to prospect. So let's kick off with that one. Why is it in this day and age that so few salespeople actually know how to prospect, especially in bad times?
1: I think there are a few reasons. First and foremost, I think it's a four-letter word, and that's fear. Fear of losing. And I don't think that we're teaching. Like, we... We're taught way back when you and I were sales guys and and out there that two things. One, all money ain't good money, right? And secondly, every client is not a good fit for you. Absolutely. And I think also because you've got these, again, managers that are teaching at all costs, everything is about the closed deal. And sometimes, you know, (laughs) free costs too much, (laughs) quite honestly and you get into these deals and you realize that it's a bigger headache by getting in than if you would have walked away. And unfortunately when we're teaching and I, and I want to put this out to myself sales my practitioners specifically. When you are teaching objection handling, you're teaching discovery and qualification, also teach walk away. Please yep. teach walk away is okay. Not only is it okay, it's recommended. Because you're going to get yourself into a deep and a wide stream that you may get buried or swallowed up in, they could have simply walked away and watched that babbling stream go past you safely. Well, this is
0: really interesting. And for those of you who doubt what Roderick has just said, pay heed to this. If you make 30% margin and you discount by 50%, the next time you sell, you have to sell 100% more to stand still. If, on the other hand, you make 30% margin and you increase your price by 10%, you can afford to lose 24% of your customer base. Now, the mistake people make is that they spend so much time fixated on price. And it really isn't about price. Buyers don't buy. I mean, when was the last time you bought something important just because it was cheap? No one does that. You buy because you have a problem that you want to have solved, and unless you understand, and I, I was on a call earlier with uh, Karen Mangia, who heads up customer experience for Salesforce, and um, she's with, Absolutely,
1: absolutely
0: Well, she's just coming out with another book uh, in October, which is called "Listen Up." And the, the the question I asked her is, why do we not teach salespeople? Baby salespeople are in their diapers, in their nappies, on day one, how to listen. So, what is it sales enablement should be doing or could be doing to teach genuine listening skills?
1: Here's another one directly to my sales enablement folks, and I'm gonna add another one to sales leaders. I start and I recommend I start every single conversation, whether it's a one-on-one team meeting, etc., with a three-part question. One, do you want me to listen? Two, Do you want me to coach or three? Do you want me to fix? That changes the entire landscape of things because we are natural fixers as leaders. But what that does is two things one, it allows us to put on the right set of ears for that particular conversation. And second, it allows the asker now to own the conversation and we're not driving it. If we go to that, that will change the entire landscape of conversations with your sales folks. With your internal lines of business, with your other partners, also with your prospects and customers. Don't try it at home with your mate because that doesn't work so well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the coaching and fixing probably not, but the listening might help. Absolutely. (laughs) Do you mind if I take issue with something that you said? Always. What? Do you do mind?
1: No, always (laughs) want to hear the other side of things.
0: Okay. My question is this Objection handling. Who should handle the objection, the prospect or the salesperson?
1: The prospect or the salesperson. That's a great question. I actually think the objection should come from the, obviously, it comes from prospect. The salesperson has to listen intently, understand what's happening, and then address that piece. But the determination is still going to come from the listener and the the prospect.
0: I'm going to challenge you just a little bit more, if I may. Please Um, do. Tell me something. If the salesperson raises the objection before the prospect does and has the prospect handle it, whose
1: data is that? The data is actually with the prospect because they're handling it, is it Absolutely.
0: not? So experience has taught me over many years of SCAR tissue that prospects never object unless the salesperson creates the conditions for that objection. So if the salesperson-
1: mm-hmm. This is has- where I'll challenge you. I have seen far too many times as a salesperson and also going out, especially as of late, because, and the reason I'll caveat this, is because buyers are so much more well-informed now Uh that they're seeing things out there. And unfortunately, they see mixed messages. And so it creates either confusion or distrust. So they're bringing these things up right away as objections. Whereas before, I would say absolutely it was brought up by the salesperson.
0: Okay. I'll grant you that there, is, there are mixed messages, which then raises the next important question. What is the necessary interaction and alignment between sales enablement and marketing? Because I see an awful lot of squalid, trite, pointless, wasteful marketing that sends out exactly the wrong message. So what can sales enablement do in order to ensure that those mixed messages are not created?
1: First of all, great question. I'm glad you're bringing it up because it's time to really reset the relationship between sales, marketing, and sales enablement, especially post-COVID now. We've got to have a stronger relationship between those. We've got to have an airtight end-to-end process from messaging, positioning, go-to-market strategy, Mm -hmm. metrics, focus, enablement plan. All of those have to be aligned. Then we also have to make sure that communication across all channels, internally and externally are aligned. And I think there's four components here. One is focus, right? We need to be focusing our energy, our goals and deliverables, all of us, on things that we can impact and align with the company's goal because everything else is just noise. The second is connecting, not just connections. Because we both know relationships are the backbone of success. And there's never been a time in history where leading with humanity, empathy, and EQ has meant more. Three is adapting. We've got to pivot to deliver deeper value and improve discovery skills. We've got to be able to map to the buyer's landscape around increasing profit, reducing cost, mitigating risk, and business outcome selling. No more of this This is what we do, and why your company can't exist without it. If I see one more message like that, I'm gonna explode. (laughs) We've got to focus on helping them keep the customers and retain their existing customers. And the final piece is commitment. We've got to incorporate an innovative, again, sales enablement 2.0 post pandemic plan and strategy into your go to market strategy as a key differentiator, both internally and externally, but also. A way to accelerate your customer and your company as the clear thought leader in your space. We have an opportunity to really shift how sales enablement is viewed, valued, and also implemented.
0: You're not going to find me fighting you on any of that. (laughs) So we're in violent agreement. So let me ask you this then. When you speak to your prospects and your clients, what are the three questions they should ask you, but they don't?
1: Phenomenal question. What they, they should be asking is, how are you doing things differently and how can you help us do things differently than what we did pre-pandemic? That's one. Secondly, what are the true metrics that you focus on? And I'm not talking about butts and seats and NPS scores and smiley sheets, but what can we focus on to drive, decrease time to revenue, increase productivity, and also enhance customer success? and the third question that they should be asking is why you why now and this leads to something that i call coi now we all talk about roi right well because there's not enough acronyms in the world let's throw another one coi what is the cost of inaction if i keep doing things the way i do now okay so let's deal
0: with the second one which is measurement i see so many companies so many managers driving their salespeople to measure pointless information, lagging indicators. So dials, presentations, proposals sent, first meetings. That's fine for audit purposes, but it doesn't help the salesperson move the sale forward. And it doesn't help the manager know where they need to engage in order to support the sale. So. What are the metrics that people should be, really should be measuring?
1: All right, I love this piece and this is where I get excited. I'm going to give you some nuggets for sales and then also for post-sales for the CS org. And in both cases, I think there are two types of metrics. One, that enablement influences things like average deal size, collateral use and frequency, new pipeline created, number of closed deals, product mix, quota attainment, time to revenue, First close for new hires, win and loss rate. That's at the AE level. Now let's move further downstream to the ADR, BDR, SDR level. Things like outbound activities that are going to lead to sales qualified opportunities. How are they now moving and progressing marketing qualified leads? Um, Daily, weekly, monthly goals around sales qualified leads. Now, then there's the pieces that enablement owns. Things like the accreditations and certification mark, passing marks. The biannual needs analysis, program based surveys, usage stats around your learning and content management system, and then all of your communication pieces. Now that is for sales. Let's move forward to CS because they're a whole different animal, right? And now we're talking about things like adoption rate, ARR, customer churn rate, customer lifetime value, engagement rates, escalation resolutions, first time response times red account reduction, and then of course, renewal rates. So these are things that are going to move the needle. These aren't things that we're just throwing out for Smiley Sheets and to make enablement look strong. And by the way, these are not things that we can say, I feel like, or I think this is working. No, this is, I go back to hardline figures from my CRM system, and this tells a story that I don't get to change, adjust, or audit. Okay, those are all great,
0: and I can see why, but that sounds to me like a hell of a lot of stuff to measure. What uh, it is-, is.
1: What I want to do is give you a laundry list. And so here's where enablement comes in. Because, again, we're the conductor of the orchestra, right? Because you've got all these lines of business that are playing notes and music on top of each other until the sales enablement conductor steps up, taps the stand, and turns it into a beautiful sheet of music. How do we do that? You take that laundry list that I just gave you, You go back to your sales and your CS leaders and you say, what are the top three or four of these that we're going to focus on that are based upon the maturation cycle of where we are today and also where we're moving forward? No more than four. Because when you do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. So you say these are the top four that align to the company overall strategy goals and objectives. And then you work with that leader on an ongoing basis over communicating where are we in regards in relation to hitting those numbers. If you wait until the end of quarter, it's too late. You can't make any changes. So this is where you become a true partner with sales, CS, and the other lines of business by constantly communicating where you are in relation to those goals. Fantastic. And I agree with you, no more than three or four.
0: The four that I teach my clients are daily unique effective conversations. So they pick up the phone, Or they engage somehow, but they get to speak to another human being. They make it past the gatekeeper. They get to speak to the decision maker and they establish a verbal contract with them that they will explain in the next 30 seconds the purpose of their call. And at the end of that, the prospect can either hang up or they will talk for another couple of minutes. In my experience, in most software companies, most professional services businesses, and most medium to high ticket businesses, if you have five of those a day, Within seven months, you'll then achieve the second metric, which is that you have three to 500% more qualified prospects moving to closable. Uh, the third is the velocity that deals are moving through the funnel. Because if you end up with a Dolly Partner or a Kim Kardashian pipeline, they get blocked at the wrong places and constipated, then you can't forecast accurately. Now, with those three, we've been able to take wild. Forecasting an accuracy of anywhere between 30 and 80% wrong to between half and 5% accuracy within three months by implementing that. And there's a fourth one that I'm starting to have people focus on, which is the number of second meetings. One of the metrics that gives me bile is the realization that seven out of eight first meetings fail to result in a second meeting.
1: Now, let's talk about that one for a second. Why is that by research? Well, I'll I'll tell
0: you what I'm observing. I don't know what the research says, but what I'm observing is that, first of all, the salesperson at the end of the call does not contract for a next step. It's a really simple behavior, and it's within the salesperson's control, and the manager can train and coach it, but for some reason, it's not part of the pre-call plan. And this then brings me to another element, which is that I believe that a salesperson who turns up with a marketing and sales qualified lead and has not done a pre-call plan and a rehearsal is guilty of gross misconduct. Absolutely, You're and serious. it should be a sackable offence on the second occasion. That will send a very clear message to the rest of the team. The other thing is that salespeople are so fixated on presenting. Their proposition that they don't diagnose, so they are guilty of malpractice because they prescribe before they've done a proper diagnosis.
1: And I think there's a simple, a simple fix to this the last piece and that is stop giving presentations and yeah. start having conversations. Good lord, and it's as simple as what we're doing back and forth, right? Unfortunately, there are too many sales folks, especially the, the younger. And I'll put it in two categories, the younger new sales folks, and then the older, I've done this forever and I know how it works. They fall into this same trap. And that is, I walk in, I've done a, a small bit of research. I walk in with a preconceived notion because I've done this before or because I've never done this before. And then I let them drive a piece of the conversation. Then I jump in and I start selling. How about this? Stop selling and start helping. And then you become a useful, res- a valued resource. And it also turns from the presentation of, this is why you need to buy, to a conversation of, let's see if this is actually useful for you. So you've sparked two thoughts. I'm going to try and make sure I remember
0: them both. The first one, so many salespeople turn up to meet senior executives and uh, prospects, and they have done zero research. So their questions are bland, vanilla, and banal. Average salesperson will ask questions to gather information, which frankly they could have found out through the internet. Absolutely. Slightly better, still atrocious, salespeople ask questions to gain what they think is an understanding. The best salespeople that I've ever come across ask questions that deliver insight, which means that they have done the thinking beforehand, they've prepared. They've done their research. They've worked out what it's like to be the customer. And they think as the customer, not about them. They don't think about their product. They don't think about their quota. They think as the customer. What is it like to be Roderick? What's he facing every day, every week, every month, every quarter? How is he under pressure, being scrutinized? What does he control? What can't he control? What's he responsible for? What's the ripple effect of him doing a good job or a bad job? How long has he had to endure this? How much longer is he willing mm. to tolerate it? If I haven't done that kind of heavy lifting, if, especially if you're doing high ticket, high value strategic sales, enterprise sales, if you're doing complex sales, and you haven't done that thinking beforehand, you are nothing more than a zookeeper. You have I'm, no right to call yourself a salesperson. You
1: no, know, and I see this over and over, Mark. And that is that, and I'm glad you bring this point up, people forget that they're actually selling to a person and they are going out to sell to a logo, right? Take in consideration, what's the impact on this individual that you're talking to? Is this going to be career impacting? Is this an opportunity for them for upward mobility and career growth? Is this something that they are passionate about and they see a hole or something that's missing at their company? Instead of going in and saying, okay, I can go get this net new logo or I've got this amount of quota that this account is worth, start thinking about how can I help this individual that I'm talking to? What are their goals, their objectives? What are their objections as well? And how do I address those? And then secondarily, now let's spread out the umbrella to the rest of the company. Absolutely. So let's take
0: that just a little bit further. When I turn up to meet a prospect, I have two questions that that I want to have answered quickly. Can I help? If I can help, am I the right person to help? If I'm not, I would much rather hand over that opportunity to a competitor to ensure that the customer gets what they want. Because I believe that builds credibility, I believe that builds trust. And it means that in the future, they won't think of me like they think of most of the other salespeople who are. Shiny suited charlatans who are perfectly happy to take their money and they'd sell their granny for, the, uh, for a fast buck. And if you are not there to serve, and this is one of the things that really frustrates me selling is about service, it's not about servitude. And if you don't think like Roderick and I have suggested, then you put yourself into a position of servitude because the customer is now on a pedestal. You have not created equal business stature. And I think one of the challenges here is that very few salespeople see, them as, uh, see themselves as the prospects equal. So what are you teaching people to do uh, with respect to that?
1: Well, I, I think th- there are a few things that come into play. One is remove fair from your dialogue, please. Leave that out. Because fair went away when mom parsed out M&Ms one by one to make sure everyone got it. Yeah. Fair is not an adult word. So let's kill that. Let's not even talk about a win-win situation. Those days are gone. What I teach is how can we figure out how to make this mutually equitable? And that goes back to service, right? And it's what can I do to make sure that we can meet your goals? And then subsequently that meets my goals. But do you see what order that goes in first? Absolutely. Now it's about service and making sure that we get you where you need to go. And ultimately we'll get to where we want to go. That's and amazing. we'll get there together. And then it lengthens the journey. To your point, it doesn't become a one-time closed sale. It really becomes a relationship. And to that point, the problem that I'm seeing out there is two. One, I love social media. I'm all over it. But I think that social media has made all of us less social, for one. <laughs> right. And <laughs> the second part is stop making connections and start connecting with people. We somehow have lost that. And that is the crux of sales, is connecting and creating relationships that are mutually equitable. RALPH WALDO Emerson's
0: Law of Compensation states that if you help enough other people get what they want, you will get your needs met too. The problem is that very few people have that long-term perspective because they're worried about their quarterly results or their monthly target. And I, I have a real issue with this. And I think. I'm going to come back to uh, a point I made earlier before I do that, or a point I wanted to make earlier, which is, how do you make sure that your technical people are aligned with your salespeople so that they don't kill the sale by trying to prove that they are the smartest person in the room?
1: starts with something you talked about earlier, and that is pre-call planning understanding what are the goals, the objectives, understanding the outcomes, making sure you outline everyone's roles and responsibility and being very clear that I'm not the relationship person, the sales rep, you're not the technical expertise. We are a joint team that collaboratively make things stronger for the direction that they are looking to go. And so when you go, you take it from that angle, It's really about how can we jointly prop each other up and make each other stronger and also show that we are a unified front in regards to servicing the customer. It's not either of us trying to prove how much we know or how smart we are. Let's get away from that. Quit trying to impress and go out simply to help. Agreed. Absolutely agree. Because the technical piece and the non technical, I'll say for both, when that separation happens, It's because one is trying to impress above the other by showing what their acumen is or or their technical acumen. How about if you put it together and show just how strong this is and how this will make your prospect or your client bigger, faster, and stronger? Well, so many tech companies have
0: free downloads and free demos early on. And that kind of product knowledge used early in the sale is lethal. It slows the sale down reduces the probability of closing, raises cost in the prospect's mind, and also raises a bunch of objections that never needed to have been raised. Because all of a sudden, they're asking you questions about stuff that isn't even relevant to fixing their problem. So stop doing that. Or it forces you to only talk about the product. Absolutely. Box yourself in right away. I've been having a conversation with a tech client of mine. And historically, they've been very strong technically and they're used to selling into IT. My view is that the IT department has a relatively limited shelf life within the company. Every business is an IT business. Joe McBain from Forrester was saying to me um, last year that 60% of managers' time today is spent on IT. Every business now depends on it, whether it's the florist up the road, a catering company, or you know, Bank of America doesn't make oh, any difference. the vehicle all of us ride in. Absolutely. But what seems to be massively deficient is the ability for technical people to have human business conversations with the line of business. Now, this is also really key because 80% of purchases of technology in 2019 were made by line of business managers. They weren't made by IT. So if you think you can sell to IT nowadays, you're sorely mistaken in four out of five cases.
1: I'll tell you how we actually circumvented that problem in one of the previous companies I was in. So most companies do some form of certification or accreditation around their company pitch or messaging and positioning, right? We did the same, but we threw a, a small wrinkle in there. First of all, we didn't do it with a deck and you couldn't use a deck. We had to use a whiteboard. And now what that does is forces you to be able to address the issues of your client or your prospect, not what you want to sell. Secondly, it also took out the inability to actually speak to any part of the overall conversation, i.e., you know what, I don't understand slide six, so we're going to pass that and we'll come back to it. And we know we never come back to it. But the most important thing it did was we actually accredited both the sales folks and the technical folks on the very same issues together jointly. So now it becomes literally a case study conversation. You're both asking questions. You're both able to show value. You're both able to show expertise and you're both able to show it in an environment where the technical people are very comfortable in a whiteboard. And it also forces your non-technical people to get comfortable with being uncomfortable by having to use a whiteboard instead of a presentation as a crutch. That is a game changer. Absolutely. And Tom Showdorf at Splunk instituted a
0: policy that everyone in the organization had to be able to do a 30-second, three-minute, and 20-minute presentation on their value proposition. But they had to articulate it through story. And uh, they weren't allowed to get into the technical
1: uh, weeds. The great Walt Disney said it so simply. We all love a good story. Absolutely. So if you can break your story into chapters, you can paint a picture, you can take me on a journey, I am far more apt to listen. Let's be honest. People are not just A D, they're A D (laughs) D D D H D these days. We are a microwave society in every sense of the word. But if you tell me a story, I'll listen to you. And it's exactly why things like podcasts are wonderful. Because instead of me having to listen to 30 minutes of voiceover PowerPoint or 30 minutes of someone droning on. Give me what I call knowledge bites. Give me a quick three to five minute segment and I'll listen to 10 of those, but I'm not going to listen to you talk for 30 minutes. Why? Because I have that choice now. Well, guess what? The same goes for your prospects. Give them things in knowledge bites instead of these long drawn out presentations and then make those knowledge bites chapters in a story that you're weaving together. They'll follow you in that story.
0: Absolutely. I I think PowerPoint was one of the PowerPoint and email were the two things that if I had my time again, I could go back in history, I'd eliminate just because they have killed so many sales that I've seen. Okay. I did want to touch on this quarterly reporting issue, particularly uh, tech companies. What I see in so many tech companies is this obsession with the quarterly reporting (laughs) and the lethality of it because What that does is it creates the conditions that allow people in procurement, for example, to take advantage of weak salespeople who have a weak or empty pipeline, because they know that at the end of the quarter, there's a fireside sale. And at the end of the financial year, they've burnt down the entire farm. So what what advice would you give to senior leadership about managing the expectations of investors, so that they can get away from this and they can actually plan and build a business that has long-term sustainable potential instead of peak trough, peak trough, and then buying business
1: at bargain bucket rates? I think there are two pieces. First of all, stop conditioning your buyer to wait for the fire sale. We've done that. We are the blame sales folks. Absolutely. It's not the buyer. We got to a point and said, okay, the house is on fire. Um, we, we need to sell something right now, please stop that. And the second is, how do you stop it? It starts with the modeling from the first and second line manager. People, look, what's important to your manager is imperative to you. If you are looking to accelerate your career and grow into that position, you are going to model what they see because the rubber meets the road at the first and second line manager. So that's where the mindset we have to shift right away. And, and that is stop giving things away, right? Because invariably, it starts to feel like free at the end of, because it is free, right? It's free money. And I realized a long time ago, there are a couple of things. One, there's no value in free. And secondly, as we're talking about, generally, free costs you too much. Absolutely. So start modeling the first and second line manager and work all the way down from the top of the org chart in the company, then in the sales organization, then down to the first-line managers. And as you see that, there has to be a nip in the bud right away every time that's seen. And there cannot be a lot of patience for that happening time and time again from your sales leader. Make an example, and that will end quickly. Because salespeople are seeing what they they learn from their manager, because that is the model of what I'm supposed to be doing, whether it's right or it's wrong. Then there are the other sales folks that, this is the way I've always done it. There are other sales folks that I'm afraid of losing the sale that do this. So there are, are a number of different components, but I truly believe that it's right there at that first and second line manager where that behavior and that mindset has to shift. And I don't disagree with you. And the challenge
0: here is this. We did a research study uh, with the Sana Research Center that came out at the beginning of the year. And it suggests that only 6% of sales managers. Are qualified for the role. Now oh, let me no. let me extrapolate because what this also suggests is that um, managers only get uh, I think it's three or five percent of the global training budget, but forty six percent of companies claimed that they had a good training program for their managers. But the evidence is there, but the results are not. If the evidence proves that, then we would have forty-six percent of managers fit for purpose, but we only have six. So there is a massive disconnect there. And in your view, what is the runway that senior salespeople who aspire to move into management should be put upon put on in order to be prepared to be great managers? Because they have the most precarious position in the company. <clears throat> now, one or two bad quarters, and they're out. They are the most undertrained people in the company. So what advice would you give to leaders in terms of building that runway so that when someone moves into a management role, or they're onboarded from outside into a management role, that they are fit for purpose?
1: Again, three things come to mind. One, it comes in the succession and the transition plan. All too many times, we take these rock star salespeople and we put them into management roles, but we have never actually teach them how to lead. These people have never held a team meeting. They've never done anything other than manage their patch. So we've got to slow that piece down and we've got to reassess what the transition plan looks like and what the parameters for success are beyond just you are a rockstar salesperson and you hit your number. That's one. The second is we have to now as an enablement organization globally We have to be working with the sales leader, primary top leader, whether it's VP, CRO, CSO, et cetera. We've got to work with them and understand what's the success criteria for your sales managers beyond just hitting quota. And a part of that should be the ownership, not the ownership, excuse me, the adoption and the execution and the modeling of the things that we are putting in place because we've agreed that this is what's important to you. And the third piece is a simple... Statement that you'll see me put up time and time again on social media. You train animals, you enable people. Mm -hmm. That concept seems to be lost.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, one of the things that I'm teaching my clients to do is um, first of all, look for people who have aptitude as well as the desire to move into management. Tom Castley from Outreach has a really good policy, which is that he looks for salespeople who have good account penetration, because they tend to be much more successful managers. That one metric um, of being able to sell multiple products and services to the same customer indicates very clearly that someone pays attention and listens, and they're looking there to serve the customer rather than just hit their number. Tom off found it really difficult to get into management. He wasn't a top performer he was good but he wasn't top performer and so it took him years to get into management this is a guy who helped lead splunk from 42 million to 1.2 billion in 5 years okay yeah that 200% year on year growth i look at other great leaders ryan longfield i look at chris dudridge colin ferguson What they really focus on is making sure that they're bringing everybody up. They spend an inordinate amount of time, 50 to 70% of their time is spent coaching. Tom Schodorf was on the phone to customers pretty much every week to speak to them, to listen to them, and to understand what's really going on. Now, one of the things that I'm teaching my clients to do is if they identify someone who has the potential and the desire to move into management is very early on, expose them to management responsibility.
1: So, (laughs) Yeah, because it's not what most people think it is.
0: Absolutely not. It's the opposite. It's not the supervisory role. The supervisory role at the beginning is probably about 30%, but that should drop to about 3% very quickly. What you should be doing is getting your slightly seasoned rep to coach and mentor a new rep so that they have to learn how to train and coach and develop. People, have them run sales meetings, have them train, have them get involved in the interview and selection process so that they Uh, used to do it. They've
1: never even hired, fired, they've never run a team meeting. How do they know what this is? Absolutely. And if you don't do that
0: for 12 to 18 months, you do them a massive disservice and don't promote people so quickly just because you're in a hurry. One of the fundamental rules that I've learned along the way is better no breath than bad breath.
1: And unfortunately, too many times companies get in a situation where they're trying to do it fast instead of do it right. And the way you just want it is the right way to do it, and that's the transition. But I want to add another component to this, and that is not every salesperson should or is built to be a sales leader. God I equate it. <laughs> I always say that sales leadership is kind of like college, university, and marriage. It's a great institution, but it's not meant for everybody. <laughs> I know, there's another one you're going to claim to.
0: I I will eventually. So again, I I think you've hit the nail on the head. And the rule here is very simple. Slow down to speed up. Start with a really clear, robust vision of where you're trying to head and the kind of business that you want to evolve into. Develop a plan. And make sure that plan is built around your ideal customers. You'd have to know who they are before you start. Absolutely. Then make sure that you've identified how you are going to fill vacancies in the future. So plan the roles that you're going to need six months, a year, two years, three years, five years down the road. Slow down and put that effort in.
1: Identify what you just hit something really strong that you should be promoting now for success in the future. Too many times companies are promoting people because I've got an open patch or, or a team that's, that's available and I need someone to lead it. That's the absolute wrong way to do this because that creates the problem that we're talking about. If I took the rock star salesperson. I didn't groom them. I didn't prepare them. I didn't smooth the rough edges and I threw them into a, a position that was guaranteed failure for not only them, but people on their team.
0: Absolutely.
1: So hire now, promote now for future success. That's, when, again
0: really critical that you design the roles and also set aside a a, a plan for what the trigger points are for you to need to recruit and put a budget in place so that when you you need to hire, you can. Now, what this means is, and this is where I see so many managers go wrong, they treat recruitment as if it's an interruption to their busy schedule. It is your number one job. Your number one job is to hire the best people. If you hire the best people, 98% of your management problems disappear.
1: Then, uh, child, let's put another word in there. Hire and coach. Ah, That's number two. Number two is
0: get the best out of them. And that means pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, mentoring, and accountability, and ride-alongs, and all the other stuff that helps them improve. The third part is make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. That means make sure you invest in the right systems, the right processes, and the right tools. So tools like Gong, Refract, Chorus, fabulous tools to help people coach themselves. Because what you you find is the top performers love constructive criticism. They love coaching. The weak ones hate it because it shows them up. And what that does is it filters out the deadwood. You don't want to hang on. So again, another rule that goes along with better no breath and bad breath is uh, hire slow and fire fast. Fire fast, absolutely. Make recruitment a manager's equivalent of a salesperson prospecting for new customers. A manager should be recruiting every day. They should be prospecting to build their bench. So they've got five, six, seven great candidates lined up. So when a vacancy does appear, then they can hire them. I just had a WhatsApp pop up on my screen about 10 minutes ago um, for a a client of mine who's recruiting, but he wasn't recruiting someone senior, he was recruiting someone junior. And I referred someone to him. And he's probably going to hire the guy now because he was so good, despite the fact there's no headcount, because it's the right thing to do, because A players pay for themselves. Absolutely. And then the fourth thing that all managers need to be ready to do is clear the path, and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And yes. if you do those four things. Allow the people to do what you brought them in to do. Absolutely. Because a manager's job is not to hit the team target. It's to help the team hit the team target. So again, how do you stop managers from donning their armor and hopping on the horse to come in and save the day? Let me show you how it's done.
1: You know, it, it's going to sound really crazy, but but. As I was talking through that, I was thinking about a bunch of managers throughout my career. And what I saw was a bunch of folks that are superman and superwoman. They yep. put the cape on, they go out, they're the super closer. And I was wondering to myself, why as you were talking? And it just dawned on me. It's because they're afraid to show what Clark Kent actually looks like. Yeah. They need to be the super closer all the time. Yep. That's not a leader. That is a manager. And now the leader is someone that says, look. I can help you and I can teach and groom you on this piece. But you know what? I just happen to be a guy that just walked out of a phone booth. I'm just Clark Kent. And don't be afraid to say, I don't know. To me, the most three powerful words on the planet beyond, besides I love you are, I don't know. Because there's an enormous amount of credibility in that. And there's also an enormous amount of humility in that. And there's also an opportunity for growth and learning in those three words. I interviewed Colin Ferguson
0: at OutSystems, and he said something that was incredibly profound, which is the best managers let you fail, but they don't let the business fail. Mm -hmm.
1: There's an enormous amount of lessons that come from skin, knees, and elbows. My mom used to say, sometimes you learn how to, other times you learn how not to. Either way, you learn. Um, You can't steal that one. That's my mom's.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Mummy Jefferson did that. That's a permanent credit. Excellent. Roderick, this has been incredibly insightful. I've got a few more questions for you before we wrap up. What are you struggling with personally? What are you, what are you wrestling with at the moment?
1: I'm wrestling with this, and this is non sales related. This is personal. I'm struggling with the state of the world right now. It's heavy. I'm struggling with the sheer amount of negativity in the world. I'm struggling with the fact that. Our world seems to be focused, and especially in in professional society, that we're focused on diversity rather than true inclusion. And let me give you what I mean is, my definition of diversity is being invited to the table. Inclusion is about being able to order off the menu. Wow. That's very good. Thank you.
0: I may even quote you on that many times. Thank you. That's absolutely
1: true. My final piece, personally and professionally, I'm struggling with the fact that there is so much misinformation, misconception, and misunderstanding of what true enablement really is and the value of it. It's an incredible profession to be a part of. But unfortunately, some of us in this space have have relegated it to use cars or the fixers of broken things or just training. And again, I take nothing away from trainers. There's a phenomenal need for that. I was a trainer at one point. And so this is not a negative statement, but I'll go back to what I said earlier. We train animals and we enable people. Enablement ultimately is not about platforms, programs, processes, tools, metrics. It's about the first P, which is people. Let's not forget that piece. It's gotten lost somewhere along the way.
0: I'm not going to take that any further because it can sit on its own. It's that good. Tell me, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to?
1: Sure. So there, there are three authors to jump out at me. First is my guy, David Fisher, that is networking in the 21st century. is a phenomenal piece. Another is Creating Togetherness by Jeff Davis. And another one is Beating the Bots by Anita Nielsen. And I think collectively, those three books right now are all about people. It really comes down to how do you help people be bigger, faster, and stronger? How do you listen more, talk less? And how do you connect the dots so that everyone not just has a voice but they understand that ultimately someone or some in the organization has to have the final vote, but that they are a piece of this. It goes back to those two words that I said earlier. How do we make relationships, both personally and professionally, mutually equitable?
0: Very good. Okay, final question. You've got a golden ticket, and you can whisper in the idiot Roderick's ear, age 23. What would you whisper in his ear? Learn to shut up and listen more. <laughs> <laughs> very good
1: i always say and it, it ends this way because your mom was right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i met my mother <laughs> now this was to me so it was the- fair enough roderick thank you so much this has been incredibly insightful and i would love to do this again if you're up for it
1: Oh, anytime. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. I hope that I've given your listeners something that they can use and move forward that's useful and usable. And I'll leave you with this. Stop hoping that you get the right customers. Stop hoping that you close the right amount of deals. Stop hoping that you're successful. Stop hoping that you get promoted. Because ultimately, if you've seen anything I put on social media, there is one hashtag that follows every statement I make. And that is hashtag hope is not a strategy. Absolutely.
0: You've got a book coming out soon, haven't you? When's that due out?
1: Up and coming towards the end of the year. Absolutely. And it is around the concept of Sales 2.0 of how to do sales enablement the right way. Excellent. How can people get hold of you? We're all over social media. If you can't get a hold of me, you're not trying. (laughs) So I'm on LinkedIn at Roderick Jefferson, on Instagram at Roderick underscore J underscore associates on Twitter, at The Voice of Rod, and also on Facebook, at The Voice of Rod. Or you can hit me directly, Roderick, at roderickjefferson.com. If you can't find me, you're not really trying.
0: <laughs> I, I strongly recommend you try and find him. So, uh, Roderick, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure.
0: This is Marcus Kauke, signing off from the Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch with me, either via LinkedIn or via email. And you can contact me at mcauchi at Or you can contact me via my personal email, which is marcuskauke at me.com. And if you think that you'd be a good guest, or there's someone that you really believe would be a great guest, then please connect the two of us on LinkedIn, or just ping me uh, an email and suggest that we get in touch.
1: In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.